Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Tennis Channel Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you for joining me as we have another great show for you this week. As I am blessed to be joined by Tennis Hall of Famer Tracy Austin, it would have been Hall of Fame induction weekend in Newport, Rhode Island, but we got the next best thing. The Hall of Famer joins us. Tracy was more than generous with her time discussing her tennis journey, the youngest U.S. Open champion ever at 16 years old, the youngest member of the Tennis Hall of Fame ever at 29 years old, she talks about how she got there, her influences, her ups and downs. Is she at peace with her tennis career, this fulfilling broadcasting career, and also some current event topics, including Serena Williams' return and the tour resuming with the U.S. Open coming up in a few short weeks. All that and more with Hall of Famer Tracy Austin on the TC Live podcast. Here we go. All right, this weekend would have been the International Tennis Hall of Fame ceremony in Newport, Rhode Island, but due to the ongoing global pandemic, that ceremony has been canceled this year. But in the spirit of greatness, we're now joined on the TC Live podcast by one of the most memorable players in the history of the sport, a woman who set records, achieved tremendous accolades, and embarked on a second career that has been arguably as successful as her first. Still the youngest U.S. Open champion and youngest person inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Tracy Austin. Tracy, thanks for joining us. Hi there, Mitch. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you this weekend in particular. There's a lot of current events and uh, a lot of uh, stuff to discuss with the resumption of the tour. But before we do that, it is Hall of Fame weekend. And uh, I had to get a Hall of Famer on here, Tracy. Uh, it's, <laughs> been, it's been a minute, but your records still hold up. Youngest inductee and uh, youngest U.S. Open champion. And I actually did watch your Hall of Fame speech last night to kind of prep for this. And uh, I was just I was fascinated by the fact that you were inducted by the late, great Don Budge. You mentioned uh, being in a class with all of your heroes, essentially growing up, being part of that Hall of Fame speech. And you also mentioned the fact that you, you, were, you had a boyfriend, now your husband, and uh, you, you know it was a love affair of tennis for life. And you know with the kids that have gotten involved in the game, that, those words held true. So it was a very prophetic speech and uh, one that I enjoyed watching for sure. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you. Actually, I haven't gone back and rewatched it. You did more homework than I did. Um, but yeah, I think the Hall of Fame weekend is obviously so emotional for a tennis player because to get um, to be told to, to get that call that, that you are going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, it's really the cherry on top. It's the culmination of a long journey. You know, most tennis players, most athletes have been going after their goals and doing their craft since they were, what, five, six, sometimes 10 years old. And with goals and dreams and, and ambition, determination, will, whatever you want to call it, every single day. So at the end of the day, to be added into, um, you know, the Hall of Fame, where there are obviously so many greats that you looked up to, it's a, a huge reward for, I, I guess, what you consider a, a job well done. It's it's definite exclamation point and it's a very emotional weekend because your family's there with you to enjoy it and of course none of that gets done without without a team you know coaches family friends whatever whatever it is there's nobody that got to to that level of anything without 
a whole support staff and a whole support team. You know, I'm a self-proclaimed tennis nerd, and I love looking up all these origin stories of, of how great players got involved in the sport. It's pretty simple to, to look at your story. Everyone in your family had the bug. Literally everyone. All your all your siblings, you were the, the run of the litter that got to play. Your your mom got the bug through uh, meeting, you know, met your, met your father and, and really got involved in that. Your uncle played. Everybody was involved, and here you come along just trying to fit in at that Jack Kramer club. And you mentioned in that speech your first trophy, just hitting the ball against the wall, starting something <laughs> special. Yeah, Mitch, you've really done your homework talking about my uncle playing. That, that's fantastic because my uncle Bill actually played at uh, college at USC, and he was six years older than my mom. So my mom went to all of his tennis matches, and that's how she – got started liking tennis, but it wasn't until after her fourth kid that she decided to play tennis and became the general manager at the Jack Kramer Tennis Club in Rolling Hills Estates. And that's two weeks later, I was born, if you can believe the timing. It was kind of a perfect storm. Jack Kramer was the owner of the club. Dick Braden was the, the head tennis professional who was actually at the hospital when I was born as well because we were close family friends. So it was really just a, a wonderful, wonderful family club. And as you mentioned, three of my older brothers, my older sister, they all played tennis. So it was a thing to do in our family. I was lucky that I liked it because it was either tennis or tennis because <laughs> that's where we were nine to six every single day, except for Monday when my mom had a day off. So it was a, a wonderful start where there were always plenty of other kids to play. What's funny is that Vic started us off. I was seven when Robert Lansdorp came to the club, and I like to joke that it was, that's the good order, because Dick made it fun in the beginning, and then Robert, the taskmaster, uh, you know, came, and he was, it was very important for him to get the technique right, and he was tough, and he, you know, built this competitive nature, it was already there, but he made it even stronger, so it was, uh, I really feel fortunate that growing up in Southern California with a lot of people to play it was a, a, a perfect storm of, of who was a part of my life and, and that whole process. It's interesting. Southern California, Tracy, I, I looked on the website for the Jack Kramer, Kramer Club, and it's all these other national champions. <laughs> you got Lindsey Davenport, Pete Sampras, a lot of other players that achieved a lot. Is there something in the water? Is it just this club or is that region? You know, everyone here talks about Florida, but what makes this region in California such a hot spot? Yeah, that's really interesting, Mitch. I think in, at the beginning, it was an iconic club because it was Jack Kramer, who was obviously former uh, world champion uh, owner. And he would bring, when the top guys were in town, whether it was Rod Laver or Ken Rosewall or Lou Hode, he would bring them into town to practice. So that gave it kind of this prestige already. And then Vic, uh, this tremendous tennis coach, popular, uh, Dick was it was so hot, particularly in the, in the 70s and the 80s, as far as making tennis fun for everybody. Then then Robert Lansdorp came along, and that's when there were so many national champions at the club. There were actually a number of players from around the country that moved to the South Bay, to uh, Rolling Hills or Palos Verdes area, to come train under Robert's tutelage. So I think that helped everybody that was already training there. It's funny enough because it almost made it a tennis academy. It, it wasn't per se a, a functioning tennis academy, but it was pretty much the same because you had always plenty of, of people to practice with and, you know, cut your teeth on getting better. I, you see player yeah. X on court five practicing that hard. 
you're going to practice that hard. You're, how about the competition on the weekends in Southern California? Mm. You're always going to be tested. And I think that helps everybody to improve. When you were a young player, Tracy, did you look directly to your family as tennis influences and, and idols on the court? Did you kind of start to open that bubble out to the pro game? Who were your main influences and, and players you aspired to be like? Yeah, that's that's a great question also because the Kramer Club was so rich with, um, you know, tennis history and tennis heritage. So it was my, my tennis family because I saw my older sister playing on the pro tour and that looked exciting. She came back with great stories of travel and, and meeting fantastic people, not necessarily always talking about the tennis matches, but it, it seemed intriguing to me. But there were former champions coming to our club. Billie Jean King came to shoot a Wilson tennis commercial. Uh, it was Dodo Cheney and her mother, Mae Sutton, who had been a Wimbledon champion, coming to the club. Looking at these people that had played at Wimbledon, and, and as I mentioned, Rod Laver, those types of people, if you're around them and you just watch them play and then you see them later on TV or hear them speak on TV, you think, you know what, that's something that, that I might aspire to. Yeah, when you see them in person, especially like you get that opportunity with a prestigious club, it's great to to see them and, and realize that this is a, a tangible goal. I, I want to just preface this by saying we do have a lot of younger viewers up here that might not be as uh, rich in their tennis history. Tracy, you were, by all accounts, the, the main tennis prodigy of your era. And this was an era when, you know, we don't have access to social media at the time, a lot of uh, opportunities to see this. Your junior career was just soaring uh, beyond all heights. You win, you know, the U-12s at age 10. What was that experience like playing as a young player and just consistently beating everyone? Did you realize early, like, hey, I got something special here. Did you have to find your game a little bit when the competition got harder? What was the experience like playing as a young tennis player? It wasn't a, uh, yeah, it wasn't about thinking too far ahead of myself. Obviously, I, I wanted to, maybe someday play on the pro tour. And when Billie Jean came to the club and I was told that she was number one in the world, that was the first time where the penny dropped. I said, wow, that's something that I think that I'd like to, to try to achieve. But other than that, it was really about just the next weekend of tournaments and the next day of improving and putting one foot in front of the other, you know, going to 12 nationals, looking forward to playing those for the first time and then, you know, winning and then saying, okay, where are we going next year and, and continuing to improve. So I wasn't taking in how young I was and the accomplishments that I was achieving. Yeah. Now, I was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 13. I didn't, it was going to take the picture. I practiced in the morning, you know, put on a jacket and went and took the picture. I, I wasn't even like, wow, this is going to be a big deal. It was just kind of, as I said, going uh, one step at a time. And I think that was actually healthy because nothing became too big for me. I, I know I kept things kind of small and it, it never really became overwhelming. Even when I started my first pro tournament, I played at 14. I, I wasn't really thinking big picture. And I, I think all along the way that was extremely helpful because otherwise it was a pretty quick life at 15, 16, 17 with the endorsements, still right. staying in school, still staying in public school. You're playing Martina and Chris on the weekends and then you're going back and studying for a biology test on Tuesday. And that kind of, I think kept me grounded and it was very helpful to um, just make me feel a little bit more normal because my life as far as tennis was concerned was anything but normal. 
I'm glad you mentioned that. You're kind of foreshadowing here because I have that in my notes. The Sports Illustrated cover at age 13 with the with the caption "A Star Is Born," which was monumental, even more monumental than to be on the cover at such a young age. Uh, I do want to read you something, not to get too sentimental, but I read the article by by Curry Kirkpatrick that he wrote on your family, all of you guys loving tennis, and the quote that a 13 year old Tracy Austin said, and it was, "I know most people don't get a chance to be number one in anything." Now that I have that chance, I want to keep hitting and working. I just have to play tennis. When you hear that read back to you, what, what goes through your head hearing your younger self say that? I think just the passion that was burning. I mean, it was so yeah. strong that I really could not wait to get up every day and to go train. I wanted to get better. I think that it was extremely helpful that I grew up at the Kramer Club where there were at least 20 players that were good and that were going after the same goals, types of goals that I was going after. So it was, you just have to look left or you just have to look right to somebody that was training just as hard as you were. And I'm competitive by nature. So I, I wanted to make sure that I was keeping up with them and maybe doing a little extra at the end of the day to get ahead. And uh, so I, I, I think that it's unusual for somebody to love something that much, uh, you know, whether it's ice skating or, you know, people would come up to me and say, gosh, you're, you're missing your you know eighth grade dance or you're missing your high school prom and I didn't feel like I was missing anything because I think I felt that I was just gaining this, these valuable experiences that I was thoroughly enjoying. And uh, I, it's, I think it's rare for somebody to want to get up and train you know, three, four hours a day um, and then get up and you're tired the next day and, and want to do it again. That, that takes, uh, there's, as I said, there's very few people that, that want to push themselves that hard. But to me, it, it didn't feel like I was pushing. I was like, pulling I just could not wait to do it and and that was fun that that's the adventure the journey that I was enjoying introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe more than just a tennis shoe it's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette it's designed to enhance speed and power on the court the multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com it's Tracy Austin here on the TC Live podcast. Uh, just to kind of switch to, to current events for a little bit, what do you think when you see someone like Coco Golf, for example, another young prodigy coming up, and you have the perspective, Tracy, that very few people have. You've lived a lot of her early life. What do you think when you see yeah, someone I, like her come up and have the same things thrown at her, have the same, in, in her case, the same position where she's still putting time in and working hard? She is so fantastic on so many levels. Um, just the, the personal level, she is so well-spoken with the press. She, at such a young age, she's able to seem so mature. I definitely was, you know, at 15, I was much more shy and uh, didn't speak, uh, as, as lengthy and as confidently as, as Coco does. She, uh, seems to on the court have this tremendous presence and confidence for someone so young seems to be able to adjust her game on the fly through a match, which is very unusual. Usually it takes players years to figure that out. Uh, you know, she knows what she needed to improve at the U.S. Open last year. Her serve, second serve was a little weaker than she maybe wanted it to be. Her forehand needed to, to clean up. She did that this year already by the Australian Open. So she's just a person that is extremely impressive. Her family is very close, which I think is important and imperative for her to you know, travel this, this journey that where she has so many expectations and 
but she seems to enjoy it all. She seems to thrive in situations. And I got to say, I think it's a little bit more difficult even for her because of social media, every move that she makes, we all know about now. And, uh, you know, social media for all of these players, I think is, is more taxing and uh, can be more difficult. Yeah, it's definitely not uh, an easier time, to say the least, to be an athlete on, on the rise with a lot of hype behind her. And it's, it's important to also note that the two major runs that she made, I mean, she lost to the eventual champion in help at Wimbledon last year and then this year, Cannon at the Australian Open. And she also, another thing I wanted to get back into your career a little bit, Tracy, she was able to you know, work on some players that she lost to and beat her the next time out. Naomi Osaka got her at the U.S. Open. She beats her in Australia. When you were coming up and, and you started to, you know, actually taste defeat against players that were older and at the time had more experience than you, what was that reaction like and how did you take it to heart and, and promise that it wouldn't happen again and make those adjustments? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a, very interesting to play players that you've seen on television as a youngster and now you're playing against them. And it's very easy to be a little overwhelmed and you're thinking, wow, okay, here I'm out here and I'm just appreciative to be out here. For my uh, situation, it was different and physically I was very overpowered. I was, when I first played at 14 against Chris and Martina, I was about five feet tall and about 90 pounds. So that was the biggest situation for me. For Coco, she seems to be so strong and so powerful and becoming even uh, you know, stronger as, as, um, as she ages. So I just think it's the confidence level, that belief that once you've played them once, okay, I'm, I was there with them. I was, I was toe-to-toe. There are a few things that I can, that I can improve on. And that, that feeling of um, awe kind of goes away in that, that aura where you, you're just thinking about who you're playing instead of just playing the tennis ball. And I think Coco thinks that she can beat anybody now. And she's proven that, that she can. And that's, that's an important quality to have. It's not a cockiness, but it's a confidence. And there's a difference between the two, but that certainly is needed as a youngster. And I think very few people kind of have that. And you can answer this one honestly. Was that Aura still there at Wimbledon in '79 uh, when you played Billie Jean King as a 16-year-old? Because I'd have to imagine that's walking out onto the court playing her. You won the match, lost to Martina in the semis, but it, it, it had to be surreal. This is a player you watched as as a young young tennis player. And now you're playing her in Wimbledon. Yeah, it it was interesting because I did a, a report on Billie Jean in the fourth grade. <laughs> I obviously looked up to her, and then she was my Fed Cup captain. Billy's just awesome. She yeah. just has this larger-than-life personality, and you couple that with playing her on center court where she feels so confident. She has the perfect game style with the serve and volley. She can slice that backhand. She can chip and charge. She's athletic at the net. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot to take in, but I did my best to try to just, again, focus on the ball. And I think by that time, I, I know it sounds like I've been on the tour forever, but I felt like Billy was more of a friend than someone that, that I just looked up to because I had, I had been around her enough. And uh, so, so that was, it's certainly time kind of helps you in, in that area as well. Did you have to manage, I, I know we talked about the last time that you were on this show uh, a couple months ago with Kenan in terms of managing her schedule and, you know, things are going to change now that you're a major champion. When you won that U.S. Open in 79, beating, you know, Martina and then Chris Everett in the final, things are going to obviously change. What was the schedule changes? What was life on tour? You know, how was that completely altered when the moment you became a U.S. Open major champion? 
I think it was about time. And it was all of a sudden, many more demands were put on, on me. I was still going to public school, as I mentioned. But now all of a sudden, more endorsements were coming my way. So every morning, my agent would call my mom and talk about what interviews the WTA would want me to do or would I want to sign this contract to do a, you know, a, a, a jewelry campaign or a, or, or a perfume campaign or they wanted to do a doll you know, with me, I didn't want that. I denied that. I was embarrassed at the time, which was, I think, stupid. It would have been an honor. So there are there are many things that you, many mistakes that you make along the way because you're young and and you're, um, you, you know, you kind of you don't have that experience. But certainly, there were endorsements that I did because they said, no, you're only going to need one or two days, and the other endorsement they needed five or six days. I didn't have five or six days to give. So it was all about managing time. Uh, I was felt like I was busy from morning to night and the team around me, my agents, my family really had did a good job and I think had to manage uh, me emotionally, physically. For somebody so young, you, you can't just put too much on them or it's, uh, it's, it's just too overwhelming. What was that first day of school your senior year like, you know, the Tuesday after you <laughs> won the U.S. Open? <laughs> it was a little, it's a little different because Again, I was more shy than, say, Coco seems to be. Mm-hmm. And so I had my set of friends that I'd had since kindergarten all through middle school. So I felt comfortable with them. But now there were certain kids that all of a sudden, you know, were pointing. And, and so it's definitely, you know, when I won a Porsche, that was a weird day, too, because then all of a sudden the guys were wanted to go out on a date because they wanted to drive a Porsche. They thought that was going to happen. So it's uh, there were definitely interesting stages along the way well you you won what four porsches before you were 18 and the first one you yeah. didn't even have a driver's license yet yeah that's right that's right so i had to give my mom the first oh, one okay i was like that i was wondering if you just kind of <laughs> held on to them for a little bit or you know just bought a garage for it i don't know but that's that's a lot of porsches for sure i uh, know it's just it it, it's fascinating to hear your story for all this and uh especially with a lot of young prodigies come up and there's a lot of hype surrounding them and it's tough to live up to them, some live up to that hype. Sometimes it's not even the player's fault when when they don't meet expectations that we put onto them. And unfortunately, Tracy, you know your career gets cut short. You still win thirty titles in a short span of time. But looking back on your career, are, are you at peace with it? I know it's a difficult question to say, but you had a, a brief run, but it was as great as any great champions run that we've seen. So, what are your thoughts looking back on your career? I think it's like life. Uh, you wake up some days and you feel like the glass is half full and you wake up some days and you feel like, oh, I could have done more. The glass is half empty. And it's, it's all your perspective. I really believe that overall I'm extremely blessed and uh, just feel very, um, I don't know, just I do feel at peace with what I did. I, there's so many young kids that I've talked about that were trying to achieve the same thing, to become number one in the world, to win majors, uh, you know, it worked just as hard as I did. So, so yes, I, I do feel like I'm extremely appreciative for what I accomplished. Could I have accomplished so much more if I had played past 21? Yes, without a doubt. You know, would I have, could I have done a, a better job with the knowledge that I know now, uh, you know, physically taking care of my injuries, uh, physically, you know, knowing to, to get a, a better trainer, to, to better doctors, whatever it was. Um, it, it is what it is, as, as we all know, and we learn from it and, and we move forward. But I think overall, just to, to realize the, the kind of what tennis has brought to my life. Tennis has been really everything. It's given me my life. I mean, it's, it's 
taught me so many of, of my life lessons because as you know, it challenges you. Mm-hmm. It challenges off the court. It challenges on the court. You know, it gives you your highest highs and sometimes your, your lowest lows puts you on the big stages. Um, you know, you go after your goals, you achieve most of them. I'm very appreciative. Yeah. And, and you said it perfectly. It, it's, it's a part of your life. It's, it's given you the highs and the lows and it sets you up for, you know, the second, the second act, the third act even. And, uh, it's gone very well, your role as a broadcaster and as a mother as well. Just one last thing before we get into the, uh, current events, Tracy. I, I just kept thinking about this. There was an old sports center feature about 10 years ago on De La Salle High School out here. And uh, Joe Montana's son was the quarterback. And the coach of that team said, yeah, we have a policy where you can only help out the coach. You can only help out and coach if you're a parent, if you've won, you know, three Super Bowl MVPs. So I wonder <laughs> that with like your kids when they're playing tennis, you know, if you've won two U.S. Opens, you can kind of give pointers. Do you see yourself as that tennis mom as someone that'll you know, offer the advice or do you like to kind of just sit in the back and wait till afterwards? Well, that's up to them. And I've had to take their lead. And so with the three boys, uh, I am mom first. And I think sometimes coach, it's, it's really up to them as to how much, you know, they want to listen. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see how some kids are, are all ears and all in and want as much information as they can. So, I, I will say Brandon's probably upstairs right now. We're, we're up in Mammoth on vacation, so he's probably <laughs> listening to me right now. But um, so I have to be very careful about when I give advice and, and how I give advice. Uh, you know, sometimes it's been frustrating because I feel like I have a, a lot more knowledge that I could impart. Um, but I just am, am enjoying watching the journey of, of Brandon now making the transition from top player at USC to becoming a pro whenever – the uh, you know pandemic stops and the tour reopens. Right, and it's funny. I, I just want to go back one last time to that Hall of Fame speech. How life's full circle. You mentioned there that your mom was always super nervous and you know on pins and needles when you played, and I can only imagine that's what it's like when you watch your kids play in that same position. So absolutely, you know, my mom was such a great tennis mom. I mean, she was. I would say if I had to pick one person who was behind me and made the biggest difference, it was. My mom, I, yeah. she was the architect. So, so she wasn't necessarily the coach, but she, along the way, she'd say, you know what? I think this coach might be helpful to work with now, or this coach might be, whether it was Roy Emerson, I worked with him. I worked with Tony Roach in Australia for a couple of months. Um, so different coaches along the way. She was always supportive. Um, she was so nervous during matches. I could see that, but she just sat there and just fiddled with her bracelets and didn't say anything once in a while, clapped. She was a very classy tennis mom, didn't, you know, yell out. But I think every, again, we talked about this at the, at the beginning of, of this podcast, that you need that support behind you. It's the person driving you to the tournaments on the weekend. It's the person, you know, sitting in the car when you're crying after a tough loss and, and you know, propping you back up. It's, it's the person that, that is helping you navigate the journey because I don't think you can do it on your own. Mm-hmm. I think that you, you need help along the way. And uh, it's, I really reached out to her and, uh, you know, I'm thankful you, you mentioned her because she's gone now and, and there's be nobody that'd be more proud than watching Brandon his journey now. It's always about mom. I, I've learned that myself as well. Um, <laughs> Tracy Austin here on the TC live podcast. We can talk some current events now as well. Appreciate you letting me run down memory lane for a little bit. Uh, we're ready to start the tours to come back in uh, a couple weeks here. 
Still much unknown. Uh, the first thing, though, that we got to discuss is that Serena's going to play in a brand new event in Lexington, Kentucky. Sloan's going to be there as well. So it's cool for the local fans. They get a new tournament and Serena Williams as a, as a result. But you always got to wonder, in the case of a pandemic and also in the case, Tracy, of Serena, what that level is going to be like when she comes back. And, and she said she's all in on trying to win this U.S. Open. I think Serena means business. When I saw Serena was ordering the court surface from the U.S. Open to be uh, put in her backyard in Florida, and she wanted the same speed, the same surface, you know, the beginning of the summer, to me, that meant that she was all in. And I think she's obviously realizing that at, at 38, and with this pandemic, how many more opportunities am I going to have? She'll be 39 in September. She's looking fit. I only follow her on, on social media, so I, I, you know, I can't see her practices. But, um, and you know, we don't know how many top players are going to be playing at the U.S. Open. I think this is a, a huge stamp that Serena is going for the title at the U.S. Open, that she's going to be playing Lexington, because we've seen her in the past where she's come into majors you're a little undercooked. Everybody's going to be undercooked because not have many practice or not have any matches. But the fact that she's going to Lexington and, and wants to compete there and a few weeks before the U.S. Open, uh, I am just so excited. First of all, for Serena to be playing, for Sloan to be playing, but also for the WTA Tour to be back and, and to be seeing that live tennis on Tennis Channel. That's a great point. Uh, in the past, Serena's been rejoining a tour that's had active athletes playing around the world nonstop, and she's gotten far on her natural ability and mental toughness, but has maybe run out of gas in the finals of these majors. This time we're going to see uh, a field that is all adjusting to the same things. It's an opportunity for sure. It's definitely an opportunity because the rest of the field doesn't know what the schedule is going to hold, and, and as you also mentioned, what events are going to be played. I'm, I'm looking at the schedules right now, Tracy, and you know Madrid starts a week, I think the very next week, the next day after the U.S. Open final, and with the French Open kind of planting their flag into the ground, the fields for these tournaments, who plays what, is going to be all the gossip and all the drama coming forward because I can't see a lot of double dipping. It might just be feasibly impossible for a lot of these players. Yes, I mean, 2020 has been so difficult for everybody. And because of the condensed schedule, because the French Open can't go later because it's out, outside, we have six weeks of tournaments where you have two majors and two Masters 1000s, Madrid and Rome, in between. And you're switching from different continents, different surfaces, after being out for five months. So it's a tremendous demand on the players um, travel-wise first of all, because the quarantining and the protocols and the rules for each different country, that's difficult. But also to go into the U.S. Open after having maybe one, possibly two, your belt and you're playing three out of five sets for the men. Then uh, going from hard court to clay so rapidly, I agree with you, Mitch. I think there are going to be many players that, particularly the European players, will be comfortable to stay in Europe right. and we're trying to get a signal or we're trying to, to read into what the players are practicing on. But from <laughs> yeah. what we've heard from Lopez, who is the tournament director in Madrid, he says Nadal is going to be playing in Madrid, which yeah. would be the Monday after the U.S. Open. So it sounds like Nadal at 34 years old is going to try to defend the U.S. Open, which is also with the change in, in the rankings, they've made that adjustment. So the 2,000 points that he's defending Nadal under the new rankings, I guess he, he would not lose that. 
from yeah. this year. So that makes it easier for, for, for Rafa to make the decision. That coupled with trying to win his 20th, his 13th French, I think that's really what his, what his goal is. That's another interesting uh, tidbit is that it's a two-year ranking period, your best 18 events, and you can't use the same event twice. So in theory, Nadal can just plant that U.S. Open flag uh, and just keep those points. I'm curious your perspective on this. Do you think that the ranking system where players are, like top players versus mid or to, mid to lower ranked players, would that affect their decision making in terms of whether to try to play both events and try to you know hop across the uh, the ocean for uh, events in both Europe and North America? Yeah, if I'm a mid ranking player, if I'm say 40s, 50s to 100, 120, I'm playing every event that I can because they're probably not going to get to the second week or who knows how watered down it will be now. Let's say I'm Taylor Fritz. If I'm Taylor Fritz, I'm thinking I might be able to win the U.S. Open. I might be able to get to the semis of the U.S. Open. From, I just think that they have a, a huge opportunity. And uh, you know, if they do go deep in the U.S. Open, maybe you don't play Madrid, and then you start up in Rome and play the French. So uh, you know, and a lot of these players, as we've seen on Tennis Channel, they've been playing events, so it's not like they haven't played anything. Their bodies ready their mind is ready um it's just that uh everything will count even more once it restarts but i think it uh you know hopefully it, it all goes everybody stays safe everybody stays in the in the bubble in new york and i think actually team tennis that's, that's going on right now is is kind of a precursor For and sure. we're, we're hoping that, that that everybody stays safe and that that goes on without a hitch because uh i i think that's important for everybody to use that as, as a positive example. Right. They're playing at the Greenbrier in West Virginia, which is very close to, you know, that, that region in New York. I know it's a little safer over there, but they have so many players in a bubble. Things have gone great so far. We'd like to keep, see it keep that way and uh, maybe, you know, have a, have a good mechanism, a good example in front of the U.S. Open bubble if and when that does continue to start. And, and, just, the, and just the last thing, Tracy, you mentioned Fritz. That's a great you know, pick for somebody in, in this current U.S. Open when we don't know the field, could have a real chance to win it. I look at younger, fitter players, maybe players that have been getting those match reps and UTR events and in exhibitions. Those are the type of players. It's so hard to predict who might, who might win these things, but I'm looking for somebody, especially on that men's side with uh, you know, the big three, at least partially not playing could be a younger, you know, fitter player that has the energy and is able to just bounce back from uh, getting back out of the court so quickly. That's an obvious one for me. It's Dominique Team. I feel like every time I turn on tennis, he's, <laughs> he's on. He's in Berlin. He's in Belgrade. He's in Austria. He's played almost 30 matches, so he's going to be match tough. He's been to three major finals before. Um, he, I think by getting to the Australian Open final, I think he was up two sets to one on Djokovic. We know he can now play on hard court. It's not just about being successful on clay. Three out of five will not be a problem for team. Uh, he said he is committed to play. He sounds excited to play. So I, if Djokovic does not play, I, I don't know. I mean, Rafa, Rafa, I think, will just play the French. I think Rod, Roger's out for the rest of the year. Djokovic... I saw he started practicing on clay. Then he now he's practicing on hard. So he said it was doubtful at the beginning. So that to me, I, I think we're we're still trying to take his temperature on whether Djokovic will play. But team to me, I, I think he's one of the favorites for sure. It's exciting. I can't wait to watch it, Tracy Austin. This has been a blast having you on the TC Live podcast. Very last question: Your broadcasting career it's it's gone on. Uh, you know, it's it's gone leaps and bounds consistently. 
What's your favorite aspect of it? Do you like calling matches the most? Do you like breaking down matches right after the studio show, interviewing people, interviewing players? What's your favorite aspect of broadcasting? I like to be in the thick of it. I like calling matches. I love to see how the players adjust, whether it's emotional, whether it's tactical, um, what they can do with the tool set that they have against the player that they're playing and, and, and their tool set and, and the adjustment from the first set to the second set, you know, how players manage their emotions. I, I actually love breaking that down. I, I love doing that as a player. And so for me to be doing, able to do it, the opportunity at small tournaments, at the Grand Slams, I just feel very blessed. That's a great answer. The only thing I would add to that is, as a personal fan, I love it when Tennis Channel yourself gets to interview a, a first-time major champion. We don't really see that a lot on the men's side recently, but it's nice when we have a set, like at the French Open, and you get to interview someone that's won that first title, just that instant reaction. You know, when, when you can tell it still hasn't completely sunk in yet that they're you know, a part of greatness. Cause I know, especially in your yeah. perspective, you've, you've been there before. Like Ostapenko, we had her on the set. Exactly. Garbina Muguruza. Yeah. That's, that's so exciting to see just a look in their eyes and how that's a life changer. That first time you win a major, it's, it, it defines the rest of your life. It'll never be taken away from you. Well, Tracy Austin, thanks again for joining us again. Uh, we're all happy to be teammates with you and uh, thanks for coming on the TC live podcast. This was fun. Always a pleasure, Mitch. Great job. You can catch every episode of the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network, tennis.com slash podcast, and all your podcast devices. For Tracy Austin, I am Mitch Michaels. This was the TC Live podcast.